Good morning, church. Before we get into our message, uh, I just want to say a word to some of you. I've been talking to many of you, and you've been um, going through a very difficult time, uh, spiritually, financially, uh, feeling disconnected from people, uh, asking questions of when is this going to end, when can my life get back to normal, when can I do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and uh, when can I see the people that I love, when can we get together as a church uh, what's going to happen to my job? There's a lot of questions that are going through your guys' minds. And I just want to encourage you that uh, the Lord sees all of this. The Lord knows what you're going through. And uh, he's going to give you the grace. He's going to give you the strength and the wisdom to see, uh, to see you through this. And he has not left you. He has a plan for this. He's going to work through this. He's going to um, do good things for those who love him. I'm going to work, work through all circumstances. And so um, the Lord wants us to endure. He wants us to persevere. He wants us to um, focus on him and to renew our minds with the truth, to come to him um, and to lift up all our anxieties. It's, scripture says, lift your anxieties to the Lord, cast them upon him and uh, he will help you. He will lift you up in due time because he cares for you. And that's what Peter wrote to us. I think it's very important for us to keep that in mind. Uh, But the Lord is with us. So be encouraged through that. Well, we've been in a series called The Church as Diaspora. And we've been looking at how the church is to function and to move in an environment of great disruption and dispersion. And we're in our fourth week of this now. Uh, We're going to look at a topic we're going to call Generation C during this message and how we define that as Christians during this time of crisis. And so uh, let me open us up in a word of prayer and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father, in this apocalyptic time of human history, uh, we pray that we may, during this next few moments, be able to take a step back from the small picture, from our own individual lives, and, and perhaps see a glimpse into what you're desiring for your church to be and to do during this time. I pray that uh, we may be strengthened by knowing that we are your possession, we are your people, that once we were a people without mercy, living in darkness, but now we are a people who have mercy and who are living in the light. And may we declare the praises of your greatness to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Did we all just get baptized into Generation C? We tend to look at each other in terms of being a part of separate and distinctive generations. We say that uh, you're part of the builder generation. You're part of the baby boomer generation. You're part of the uh, Gen X generation or millennials or Gen Y, Gen Z generations. And we tend to look at each other as parts of these separate and distinctive generations. But I wonder if we all got baptized, if we all just got born again into the same generation, what we're calling Generation C. Generation C stands for many things. It stands for Generation Coronavirus, uh, this virus that has infected, what, almost 2.5 million people as of April 19, 2020, in 210 countries and territories around the world. We thought that World War III would be nuclear. We thought it would be economic. Turns out World War III is a virus. This is the first time since, uh, since the flood of the entire planet during the days of Noah that every single human being on this planet has faced the same life-threatening event in such a short period of time. Generation C stands for Generation Coronavirus, but it also stands for Generation C. 
crash. The world's economies are at a full economic stop. Uh, we hear of hospitals that are overwhelmed with the sick and the dead. We're starting to hear mental health workers warn us of the dangers of a prolonged quarantine, of isolation, and the anxiety that that can bring on people's mental health. Generation C stands not just for Generation Crash, it stands for Generation Computer. We have seen through this coronavirus crisis us go from an addiction to technology to seeing technology as our lifeline. And we will see in the future it morph into technology as our biology. This time will be known as Generation Computer. But Generation C stands also for Generation Christian-less culture. Christian-less culture. We were well into the post-Christian age before the coronavirus crisis. Um, This is a time when uh, Christian beliefs and church attendance are at its lowest point in the past 50 years since going back to the mid-1970s. And people describe themselves today not primarily as as Christian, not primarily as devoted to church, but I'm spiritual, I'm good, I'm just not into organized Christian religion. One out of every three people who are self-quarantined right now describe themselves as such. And so culture is rapidly moving away from Christ and the church. And is that what this generation is going to be known for? Are we going to be known for Generation C, standing for Generation Coronavirus, Crash, Computer, Christian-less culture? Or will Generation C be known for something else? How will the future history of this time remember Generation C? Is it possible that God has a different plan in mind? That instead of us being known for any one of those definitions, instead, what God wants is for this time, Generation C, to be known for as the time when Christ reigned in our souls and that the church declared courageously the excellencies of him who has called us out of the dark and into the light. The church needs to rise up to this moment to define Generation C in the name of Christ and the church. Society has gone through a reset, and we're starting to have conversations about what it will look like to restart our society. Just as society has gone through a reset and will be going through a restart in the future, people's spirituality has also gone through a reset, and it will go through a restart in the future. People's spirituality has gone through a reset. Their character is being tested. Their relationships are being strained. And there's an intense focus on issues of life and death. Those are all spiritual issues. And in the future, people will be going through a spiritual restart. The question posing, uh, being posed to the church is, will that spiritual restart continue on uh, with the post-Christian era? Or will the church, through in the name of Christ turn things around to where people will experience a great revival, a great spiritual awakening towards the Lord and his people. In order for the church to meet this moment, she cannot be content in simply coming out of this crisis and restarting both in terms of society and spiritually. She cannot be content by saying, well, look at how much more technologically we advanced we are 
in our, our Sunday services and ministries. Uh, that's our big restart as a church. She cannot be content by saying, well, look at how creative we were in doing ministry during this crisis and, and patting ourselves on the back because of, of our ingenuity. She cannot be content by saying, uh, wow, I, we're just so glad that we financially survived uh, this crisis as a church and it looks like we're going to be around. The church has got to rise to a higher place to meet this moment of Generation C. The Apostle Peter wrote to uh, the Generation C of the first century. He wrote to the Gentile Christians of the Diaspora Church in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey. And these Christians, were, they were suffering. They were separated from the Christians in Palestine. And they were going through many spiritual challenges. And so we're going to look at just two verses here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Because it is in there that Peter reminds the Christians of their spiritual character as God's people. And he also encourages them to declare the message of God bringing us from life, into life from death. And to declare that message to the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Peter writes this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's awesome. Peter reminds the diaspora Christians, and he also reminds us in verse 9 and 10, that we are a people of God's possession. We belong to God. Once we were not God's people, once we had not received mercy, but now we are God's people and we, are, we have received mercy. That language of not being a people, becoming a people, not having mercy, now having mercy, Peter is invoking the language of the Old Testament prophet Hosea who um, spoke to, the, to Israel about 800 years earlier And the prophet Hosea had spoken to Israel about her disobedience. And he basically said, Israel, Hosea said, once um, you once rejected God, but in the future, God will give you mercy because you are God's people, Hosea said to Israel. And as Hosea said that to Israel, Peter is saying this to the New Testament church. And he's saying this to us. Be reminded that we belong to God. God has been merciful to us. We are God's possession. See, you belong to God. You don't belong to the coronavirus. You don't belong to your job or the job that you used to have. You belong to God. And uh, God is going to take care of his possession, both in this life and in the life to come. And so be encouraged by that. Peter says that in verse 9 and 10 of 1 Peter 2. But he also goes on to say in verse 9 again, he describes who we are as God's people. He says, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He says, we're a chosen people. We were chosen through Christ for salvation, for a relationship with, with him. We are precious to God through Christ. I'm glad God chose me. Uh, first, rather than me choosing God first. I think it's much more uh, secure and much more truthful place to be in for God to have chosen me. He says that we're a royal 
priesthood, that we are royalty, we have the authority of Jesus Christ because Christ lives in us to declare who he is and to have spiritual authority through that. We are a priesthood. That means that God has proudly commissioned all Christians to, um, to offer to him our prayers, our praise, our possessions, um, uh, our, our works of service to the people around us. And, and we are commissioned not only to do that, but God receives that as a blessing, and he is well pleased with that. That is who we are to be reminded of, of who we are in this world as the church. Verse 9 again, Peter also says that we, as God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, a people who are God's possession, who have been shown mercy, that we are now to declare his praises, he says in verse 9, because he has called us out of the dark and into the light. The Apostle Paul said it this way to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 1. He said that God has moved us from the dark kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God. And in that kingdom of Jesus Christ, we receive redemption and forgiveness of sins. And so Peter writes to the diaspora Christians. The Holy Spirit speaks through Peter to remind us that we belong to God that we are chosen, set apart for a special work of ministry, and that we are to declare the saving message of the gospel to the world around us. That's very encouraging. That's, it's very important that we as a church take a step back into this bigger picture that Peter is reminding us about of who we are and what we are to do during this time of crisis. I think the question that we need to ask ourselves right now is, what does that look like in our, in our modern day? Peter encourages the, um, the Old Testament Christians to, to have conduct worthy in a time of suffering. But what does this look like in our day, during our own pandemic? And I thought we could take some encouragement right now from Christians of past generations who, through each of their own pandemics and their own plagues, served the Lord, and served each other faithfully. And um, I have seven brief examples here of Christians throughout church history, how they face their own plague. And there are lessons that we're going to learn here, some of which are very noble and positive that we want to hold on to, some of which maybe uh, are more warnings to us. Maybe we don't want to follow some of those examples. But um, I think we're going to be greatly encouraged and strengthened to give a perspective of how people actually lived out being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, as Peter talks about, who declare the praises of the one who has called them out of darkness into light. Uh, so let's go to our first example. In the second and third century, there was a plague called the Antonine and the Cyprian plague. Um, second and third century, it was basically smallpox and the flu. 25% of the people in the Roman Empire died of this plague. And there's two things that we can take away from how the Christians conducted themselves during this plague. One is that they cared for the sick among them. And two, there was a verbal witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ for those that they cared for. Uh, they cared for the sick. There's a bishop of Alexandria. Uh, Alexandria is located in North um, Africa. And the, there was a bishop named uh, Dionysius. He was the bishop of Alexandria. And he wrote describing how the Christians cared for the sick among them during this smallpox flu of the Antonine and Cyprian plagues. And he says this, quote, Most of our brethren showed love and loyalty in not sparing themselves while helping one another, 
tending to the sick with no thought of danger and gladly departing this life with them after becoming infected with their disease. Many who nursed others to health died themselves, thus transferring their death to themselves. The best of our own brothers lost their lives in this way. Some presbyters, deacons, and laymen, a form of death based on strong faith and piety that seems very, in every way, equal of martyrdom. They would also take up the bodies of the saints, close their eyes, shut their mouths, and carry them on their shoulders. They would embrace them, wash and dress them in their burial clothes, and soon receive the same services themselves. Uh, Dionysius is saying that the Christians cared for one another, got sick, died themselves, but all in the name of Christ. And then he contrasts the Christians' um, care and compassion for those who were sick with the heathen, the, the, Ro, uh, the Roman priests, the Roman uh, pagans, how they uh, met the same situation of plague. And notice the difference. Dionysius says, the heathen were the exact opposite. They pushed away those with the first signs of the disease and fled from their dearest. They even threw them half dead into the roads and treated unburied corpses like refuse in hope of avoiding the plague of death which for all their efforts was difficult to escape. You see the contrast between the Christians and the pagans of Dionysius' day and what he wrote about. And I think that's a tremendous witness that um, these Christians cared for the sick and showed the compassion of Christ. We need to to do the same uh, should the opportunity arise for us as well. The second thing we can learn from uh, how the Christians conducted themselves is they they had a verbal witness to Christ, to those that they were caring for the sick. Um, when they would visit those who did not know Christ and minister to them, uh, they would tell them because they would correct them because the, the people who were sick, who were pagan, they would believe that they, the reason why they were sick was because the angry Roman deities were angry with them and they were punishing them uh, to kill them. And the Christians said, no, that's not true. What is happening is um, this is the result of an evil creation that's in revolt against God against a loving God. And this God desires to receive you, to forgive you, and to save you through his son, Jesus Christ. And, um, and that's a tremendous witness. Uh, church historians tell us that in the cities during this time where Christians were ministering to the sick and witnessing to them, that these cities that had Christians experienced half of the death toll of other cities that did not have Christians. And so there's not only a spiritual benefit, but there was benefits beyond that as well. Second example, in the 6th century, there was something called the Justinian Plague. Justinian was an emperor in the uh, Byzantine Empire, in the Eastern Roman Empire. And the Black Plague came uh, to, there was a big concentration of it in the capital of Constantinople. And they think the plague came from Asia, came through North Africa. And the, um, there was 50 million people that died during this time. That was about a quarter of the Earth's population. And the church uh, benefited in a couple ways, in, in, in a kind of a roundabout way. Uh, number one, they actually found that more people were donating money to the church during this time And secondly, more people were joining monasteries during this time. Now, you can look at that positively or negatively. Positively, you can say, well, maybe people gave money to the church 
um, to continue on the work of the church, to, uh, to strengthen the church. Positively, you could say, well, maybe people join monasteries because they just want to be more spiritual and closer to God. Negatively, uh, it's possible that people gave money because they believed it was some form of penance, some form of um, giving money to God so that you wouldn't get sick, which we know is not um, a biblical view. Negatively, maybe people join monasteries. Uh, some of their theological views, uh, the monks were, were really off uh, biblically, but maybe they join the monastery just to escape the world and to hide out. So it uh, might be kind of a mixed bag there during the Justinian plague. Third example. Uh, now, when you fast forward to the 14th century, this is the time of the Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague. This is the, the one that we're all familiar with. This is the plague that, that killed um, over the centuries, one, uh, half a billion, half a billion people. And the church, by and large, did not have any scientific answers during this time. They didn't know where the plague uh, exactly came from. They didn't have a, sci- uh, a medical uh, solution or antidote. And, but, but, but the church did say that God was judging people, and people believed that. And people looked at the church and said, you don't have a scientific answer. You're telling me that God is judging me. Uh, maybe I, I believe that at, at a certain level. But also, I'm looking at you, the church, and the papacy was divided. There was a huge papal uh, schism during this time. And so people were, were a little bit reluctant to believe in the church. And there was this huge pessimism that fell on the people during this time. This was the time of the uh, Middle Ages, as you know. So it was a, 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 time, it was a dark time, a uh, time of, of great pessimism. And there was two movements that came out of this that represented that. One was something called the flagellation movement. And the second was an art movement called the dance macabre movement. Both came out of the church. Uh, The flagellation movement had people from the church visiting different towns. And these people who uh, visited towns representing the church would take a whip with cords and pieces of metal at the end of it. um, And they would start whipping, self-whipping themselves as a sign of penance. And the people would watch them and they would pray and say, Lord, uh, we repent of our sins. But that kind of self-mutilation is, uh, is a pretty dark thing, maybe not something that we want to, to emulate. It seems like Christ went through the, uh, self, the, the self-punishment all on the cross for us. But there was this flagellation movement that came about during that time. And there was a second movement called the Dance Macabre. And this was an art movement of, of murals that were produced by the church that showed skeletons uh, laughing or smiling as they uh, were dancing with people or dancing in front of them and leading them to the grave. It, it was an art form that, that represented the preposterous nature of the situation of the Black Plague. And uh, it was a new art form that arose that embraced death but also wanted to communicate a seriousness to it and, the, um, and the, just the, the wild, crazy nature of what was happening, maybe giving expression to what people were feeling in terms of grief and, and their, the unbelievable nature of the situation. Fourth example, now when we go to the Protestant Reformation, we look at people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, we find very encouraging examples. Uh, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, when the Black Plague came to Wittenberg, and that's the city in Germany where he was uh, ministering in, he chose not to leave. He chose to keep his family there. And uh, one of his daughters, Elizabeth, just a newborn, she died before she was one years old, she died. And Martin Luther's wife, um, Katharina, wrote that Katharina believed that 
Elizabeth, her daughter, probably died because of the plague. And uh, they stayed in Wittenberg. And it was through that experience that Martin Luther uh, wrote a short um, flyer, short treatise called Living and Dying as a Christian, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. And he wrote this. It's about 10 pages long. I read the entire thing. And Martin Luther has several uh, helpful thoughts here, uh, four of them, that I think summarize what he was trying to say that I think are encouraging to us. Number one, Martin Luther said that if a plague comes to your area, if you are a pastor or a government official that's been assigned by God to that area, or in general, a Christian in general, that you should try and stay. You should try and stay to minister to the people that are getting sick in the, in the name of loving your neighbor. And so that should be our initial position to stay and to serve and to represent Christ in the situation we find ourselves in. Number two, Martin Luther said, um, but if you look around and you see there's plenty of help, like plenty of other pastors or government officials or many Christians or people are being taken care of and you're not, you as an individual are not specifically needed, then you're free to leave. Because uh, people are loving their neighbor, and it does not require exactly, precisely your presence. Number three, Martin Luther said, even though we should stay in general, if there are Christians that choose to flee, choose to leave, to save their life, or because of a conviction of their conscience, Martin Luther said, then don't judge other Christians for doing that. Because there are many examples in the Old and New Testament of Christians fleeing for their lives to save it. And... Um, it's very important for a Christian to follow their conscience as well. So Martin Luther thirdly said, um, people should be free to make their choices. And number four, which I thought was really interesting, he said, regardless of who you are, whether you stay or go, every Christian has a responsibility to sanitize themselves, to social distance, to, be, to uh, cleanse themselves, to, um, to not spread the disease. Martin Luther said, this is the essence of loving your neighbor is to make sure that you are not a carrier of the disease because if you are irresponsible in that area, area it is tantamount to murder, spiritual murder and physical murder. And so he said, stay away from that. Do your civic uh, duty to others. Really good stuff. Number five, John Calvin, the great French and Swiss reformer. Uh, when the Black Plague came to Geneva, Switzerland, Calvin chose to stay, and he chose to visit those who were sick of the plague. Calvin's pastors around him said, Calvin, um, let us go visit the sick. Why don't you um, just, you know, devote yourself to your writing? And so Calvin sent his pastors, but he secretly went to continue to go visit the sick. And Calvin writes that he actually led people to the Lord through those experiences. And I think that shows the importance of of Christian conviction and courage, that it's not enough to be a Christian that is a great theologian like John Calvin, but you must also be a Christian who has great courage and the courage of an evangelist during difficult times, which he exemplified for us. Sixth, exa- sixth example, uh, in the 17th century, there was a village called uh, Eam, and that was a village in uh, the wider area called, uh, Der- called Derbyshire, England and Derbyshire is in the central area of England, kind of not too far away from Manchester. And this tiny village of Eam had maybe about a thousand people. Uh, the 
Black Plague came to this village, and when it did, they made a very interesting choice. They decided not only to self-quarantine, but they decided not to leave the village. They decided to stay, all stay within their village, so that they would not infect other cities or other villages around them. And so this thousand or so people stayed. They had food brought in from the outside, but uh, about 25%, a quarter of them ended up dying of the Black Plague. And uh, there was a woman named Elizabeth Hancock. And within a span of six days, Elizabeth Hancock buried her husband and six of her children who died of the Black Plague. But they stayed. And one of Elizabeth Hancock's relatives wrote this about the, um, the villagers of Eam. This uh, descendant said, quote, It must have been terrifying, but every single family would have had a strong belief in God and would have not feared death. Wow, it's just, it's just amazing. These people chose to stay when they could have left, chose to quarantine themselves, knowing that it was going to be a death sentence for many of them, all out of the belief that um, God had already spared them of true death all because of the strength of the faith that God had given to them, and all because of a desire not to spread the disease to other people and thus loving your neighbor, as Martin Luther said. Seventh and final example for today. In the 19th century, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon pastored a church in London, and cholera broke out. Uh, That's a bacteria in the water where people get sick and die from. And Spurgeon made several observations about the outbreak of cholera in the water and what it did to people's spirituality in the church. Number one, Spurgeon said um, that when they held church gatherings, that they were going to make adjustments. They weren't just going to sit there and say, well, God will save us. Uh, He'll he'll work the miracle. We'll just continue on as as we are. But they actually made adjustments in their church services to protect their um, parishioners. Number two, Spurgeon noticed that Uh, his visitations to those who were sick of cholera, that the people that he visited told Spurgeon that when he would visit, they sensed the presence of God in their home. And uh, Spurgeon was greatly encouraged by that because he felt like this is, the church is the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ here on the earth. And for people to sense that when a Christian came, showing the compassion and love uh, with, with the message of truth, into their own home, that they would sense God was there. Number three, uh, Spurgeon noticed that people were more receptive to the gospel, that he would visit them when they were sick, and they were more receptive when they were thinking about issues of life and death. He actually visited people who didn't even go to his church um, or didn't go to his church anymore. And he wrote this about his experience visiting people who were sick. He said, quote, If there is ever a time... When the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. He said, I recollect when I first came to London, how anxiously people listened to the gospel, for the cholera was raging terribly. There was little scoffing then, he writes. And he noticed that uh, when people think about issues of life and death during a pandemic, uh, they didn't complain about his presence or the message that he had. They actually wanted to hear it. And he gave a fourth example of another man who was part of his church. 
and he would scoff at Spurgeon, and he would um, criticize Spurgeon, but he was part of his church. And when this man who had critiqued him got sick, he actually summoned Charles Spurgeon to come see him. It surprised him. And so Charles Spurgeon went to go see him, and uh, he shared the gospel with him, and he prayed for him. The man did not come to faith, though, Spurgeon says. He did not come to faith, but Spurgeon noted that it was through the witness of love and through the conduct of Christians that even those who scoff and who reject Christians and who rejected him as a pastor uh, reached out for him in these final moments because they saw something of God there that was important. And that's a great encouragement for us as Christians, is that even though people might not believe in our faith, they might um, even reject us and our faith, uh, in moments like this of life and death, you never know how God can be working in their hearts and how he can use you. In conclusion, through this time of Generation C, there's going to be heroes, there's going to be villains, and there's going to be bystanders. Uh, there are many heroes that people are talking about. Governors who um, are leading their states well. There's people who work at hospitals, who work at grocery stores that we see as heroes for uh, manning their post during this pandemic. They are heroes. There are people who are villains. People who are taking advantage of people, um, who are scamming people, um, doing things that they shouldn't be doing um, on social media and people who are ignoring uh, the safety standards of other people in foolish ways. There are villains out there and there will be more villains, false teachers arising. And there are also bystanders, which is most of us. We're sheltering in place as we should and we're watching what's happening on the news we're keeping our social distance from one another. We're mostly staying home by ourselves or with our roommates or our families. And we're bystanders. There are going to be heroes, villains, and bystanders throughout this entire event. And the question we want to close with is, which will the church be? And more importantly, will Christ be seen as the hero of this story? Will the church and Christ be raised up to meet this moment? Or will we be seen as the bystanders, or even worse, as some form of villains out there in culture? I believe that the church will meet this moment. We will meet it faithfully. We will meet it courageously. And we will meet this in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who called us out of the darkness, in the words of Peter, and into the light, that we may declare the excellencies of God. That is the moment that we must meet. That is the place that we must rise up to as a church. And I believe we are going to meet that moment and that the church, and more importantly, the name of Christ, will advance into the world and God will use this time to hopefully turn culture away, that's going away from Christ and away from the church, and turn her back to Christ, turn her back to the church, and that we will play a part in that. Do you believe that? Let's pray together. Father, help us to believe. Help us to believe that you will do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine through this time, and that the church, through the grace of God, will rise up to meet the moment 
that Generation C is posing to us. That may this time not be known primarily as Generation Coronavirus, Crash, Computer, Christian-less culture, but may this time be known as the generation where Christ reigned in the souls of his people and that the church declared the mighty works, the excellencies, the praises of the God who's called us out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you guys.